Welcome to Generations of X, the podcast where we discuss the past, present, and future of all things X-Men. I'm your co-host, the uncanny Dayspring. And I'm your other co-host, the adjectiveless Flinkman. And you guys, today is a very good day for Dayspring and I. We've got some very special guests. Uh, it's making me feel like it's Saturday morning in 1992 again. We're both super excited. Dayspring, why don't you give them an introduction? They are the authors of X-Men, the art and making of the anime series, available now at your local bookstore. Go buy it. It is worth it. We're even doing a giveaway on our Instagram, so go check us out there. But most importantly, our guest are responsible for giving us our childhood. They gave us the X-Men animated series. One was a showrunner of the series. The other was a writer who gave us episodes like Days of Future Past. We have Eric. And Julia. Lee Wald. Oh, thank you so much for coming. It really, really is an honor to have you here. Um, how are you guys doing today? Aside from being 2020, it's been a good day. <laughs> right? <laughs> Beautiful out here in Southern California. Yeah. Oh, yeah. isn't it always? Perfect though? day. Oh, yeah. We, yeah we are so fortunate. Wait, Julia, are you still playing Fortnite? I I'm I'm on Apple iPhone, and um, they haven't. I'm I'm stuck in Apple iPhone purgatory where they aren't upgrading any more Fortnite stuff. So I play oh, no. alone. It's very lonely. Wait, so you you haven't been able to play the X Men skins yet? The day it came out was the day they put the paywall up, and and I and Fortnite said no. It's like I can't, I can't play, I can't play, I can't play. Ah, <laughs> oh. so yeah, yeah. There is no justice in this. So world. unfortunate. It's so unfortunate. Um, okay, so before we dive into our questions, and guys, I am so sorry. We have so many questions. <laughs> uh, but before we dive in, I just want to say thank you to the both of you. We we grew up. Flinkman and I grew up as outsiders, and the show was a beacon for us. And we never felt alone when thinking of Xavier and his school for those who were different. Yeah, and just sort of to, to piggyback off of what, what Dayspring said, um, you know, the animated series definitely meant a lot to both of us, and it meant a lot to a lot of people, actually. Um, I was at your panel in San Diego a couple years back, 2018, and that room was packed. Everyone was so excited. It was a really, really special experience for me. So, you know, I'm sure it was special for you guys as well. So just thank you again for being here. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Yes, really, thank you. Um, so the series is still so incredibly popular uh, in large part because of the Twitter you guys started a couple of years ago. I was right there, one of your first followers, like two days after you guys started it. But it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and it was you, Julia. You're the one who started it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. That, you, can, you, can, you can blame me for everything on it because I'm still... <laughs> I, I sound so hip and cool because I play Fortnite, but I'm like, what does this button do? I don't know. Did I just send this? I don't know. So, I, yeah, it is not. Well, you're doing a great job. You're doing a fabulous <laughs> job. But the series is still so popular. And I know you guys have a lot of people come up, be, come up to you at conventions and they say, hey, I'm in my 30s. My kids are watching it. Why, why do you think people in their 30s who are now having kids are, are showing them this series? Thing, and I'm jumping in fast here, uh, the dumb luck, the kismet, whatever, but the fact that Disney Plus has put 
X-Men animated series on its, its streaming service now. No one called us. You know, we didn't. We, in other words, that was a, a magic, wonderful surprise. And suddenly there's a way to watch it because for the last several years. For a couple of years it was off. We own yeah. the DVDs, but they don't have a Blu-ray set out yet. But, and it wasn't playing consistently in any one place. Yeah, but I think to your question, a lot, we've worked on a lot, dozens of other shows, and they aren't really showing anymore. And some of them don't hold up as well as we might have loved, wanted them to. Um, and there's just some, I think there's just something about the X-Men situation, the X-Men setup, uh, and us trying to make it, trying to make the stories about the characters and have them being timeless and not timed, not, you know, 1992 heavy. You know, there were, uh, trying to write stories about stuff that anybody could, could understand, not just, you know, what was hip at the time. Uh, a, lot, lot of, a lot of shows we've had to work on, you know, especially the, you know, the more comedic ones saying, oh, well, we've got to be really uh, current and relevant and, yeah. and, and make, you know, gags that everybody on the playground will get, you know, this fall or this court. And we weren't thinking about that at all. We were just thinking about what are the most intense stories we can tell about these the characters we've been handed. And luckily we're, we're allowed to do that by yes. the executives above us and encouraged mm-hmm. to do that where usually we're not. Well, I love that in the book, you guys mentioned that you made these stories to have a lot of layers. So you weren't talking down to the audience that they, the, the children will intuitively know that there was more to these stories and that's why they would keep coming back to it. But um, wait, so I wanted to ask about Disney Plus. They did not consult you. Because um, <laughs> if, they they, if they did, the episodes would be in order. Yes. Boy, howdy. <laughs> And we've been trying, you know, we, 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 we just saying, do we, who, who do we, we don't know anybody to reach out to, to say, Hey, Disney plus, can you fix this? But just trying to, does anyone know who to call about that? Yeah. 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 But, you know, we're, Disney? We'll, 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 we'll keep trying. It's a huge, <laughs> it's a huge organization. And, you know, I think they just got the dark, the Phoenix and dark Phoenix saga sequence figured out. Uh, okay. They just put those in the right. Someone order. told us, cause it was, it was like one, Three, three two, two four on dark phoenix and they got that straight so but, i think they just straightened but there's three or four others that oh, are three. that are that are out of order that are yes. a problem and, i mean if there's two stories you have it. to get in order it's the phoenix and the dark <laughs> phoenix saga so thankfully they cleared that one up yeah yeah um so something that uh is really just astonishing to me um given how successful you were in adapting the material and making it so timeless is that Neither of you really had any experience with the X-Men before you started working on the show. What, what did that research process for the first season look like? What were you reading? Did you have someone that you could lean on for reading recommendations? Uh, both. Um, it, was, it was reading a few of the books to get a sense of how the stories went, but it was some heavy-duty reading into Marvel reference material. And the number one was the 1988 Marvel Universe this massive book that had everybody's relationship to everybody else and oh, the their histories and their powers and, and, uh, and what they'd been through and when they were good and when they were bad and how they evolved. And it was kind of like a, you know, a graduate course in X-Men over you know, six or seven days. It was 1992. There was no internet. Google didn't exist. Yeah. This all had to be acquired either through someone faxing it to you or physically mailing it to you from Marvel in New York. Uh, Larry Houston, uh, one of the uh, writer producer, uh, artist producers on the show, uh, he was a big fanboy, as was Will Minio, also um, producer, director, artist on the show. And 
they had that side locked down cold and were able to tell you uh, yeah, where and, to look. And, and we had access from, from, the, from day one to Bob Harris, who was the guy at Marvel Comics in, uh, New, in York. New York, you know, so yeah. 3,000 miles away, but still <laughs> yeah. uh, phone reachable or faxable since there was no email yet. <laughs> uh, so faxable, well, I could fax questions to Bob. I'd say, okay, we're trying to do a storm story. I've got these six questions about you know, what her background is or how she would react to the certain characters that we're throwing at her. And even though he, this poor guy was in, had the responsibility of running three X-Men uh, uh, titles yeah. at once yeah. um, at Marvel, he took the time out to read our questions and read our scripts and be supportive and, and keep us on the right track. Yeah, well, I, I have to say that, you know, coming up with the first season like that, which really was super all-encompassing of the X-Men and the amount of time that you did is just incredibly impressive. I mean, <laughs> I almost think that someone like me who's been, or Dayspring, who's been a fan our whole life couldn't do as good of a job. You know, we'd be, we'd be far too biased and overthink it. And you guys just, y'all streamlined it down to that, that really accessible level. And it was very, very impressive for sure. Agreed. What I love about what you talk about in the book is that you guys were writers first and then you built from there. Fair way of looking at it. Yeah, agreed. You know, in terms of servicing a story, whoever your characters are, whatever you're trying to do, it, it, it can be easily forgotten in all the bells and whistles, but just trying to service a story. These folks happen to have superhero powers, but that also makes them, they're human. Yeah. frailties even more in contrast. You know? Yeah. And, and I think part of it was when we had we had a lot we had a lot of writers a number of writers that were fans that had, you know knew the the book twenty five years of the books backwards and forwards, and they had a, there were a couple issues with them. One is they didn't understand that most of the, the vast majority of the audience didn't know who the X Men were, so they would take things for granted. Of, oh, don't you know? You know this is someone's nephew, and this is someone these people <laughs> fought before. So so that was we didn't have that little bit of blindness that that we were too so soaked in the lore that that we would take things for granted so that was one advantage for us the other was they they loved for good reason they loved the book so much that they would have a real might have a real agenda and say okay i need to squeeze these 18 characters into this story with all their powers and all their <laughs> background and all because it's important it's it, it, the, the the viewers must see this you know, before the end of the first season or, you know, I will have failed the X-Men. Right. So, so we were able to step back from that and be a little bit dispassionate and say, okay, that's all very exciting. We'll show off three of those people in this story, not 18. Yeah. And, uh, you know, take it. For, so it was a really nice balance, we think. And it, it, I think it really helped the show that there was a mixture of true believers and newbies that were thrown yeah. together. I Definitely. got to write the episode um, Whatever It Takes with season two, yeah. Yeah, where Storm returns to Africa. And being newer to the characters, I, I had a question and uh, asked one of the folks working on the show who was a hardcore fanboy person. I said, okay, um, how, how would Storm approach this issue? And he said, well, she wouldn't. I go, okay, no, all right, so this thing's happening. How would Storm tackle it? She wouldn't. She would never. She, she that wouldn't even. Okay, you're not hearing me. It's <laughs> not very helpful. This is going to happen. Storm's going to be there. How yeah. can we make this work? You know. So yeah. So there was a real balance. You know, a real sort of cut, having to um, uh, adjust. 
yeah. uh, for other things, yeah. Yeah, and, I, you know, I think it really served the show to, to have that fresh set of eyes on it. It really served the material well. Um, and, you know, something else that the show does really well and was definitely kind of groundbreaking for kids TV at the time was your seasons had overarching story arcs. Um, yes. When did you decide you wanted to do that versus just have like individual standalone episodes? At the very beginning, uh, Will Minio, who was like the heart and soul behind the, the, the first season, uh, fought all the political fights and had a, had a real vision for the show because he'd been longer in this business than any of us and had been a Marvel crazed Marvel fan since 1961. Yeah. Um, he really believed that uh, this should be as close to the comic book experience as it could be. And comic books tell serialized stories. Yeah. And that that was one of the things missing from the half dozen comics oriented shows he'd been allowed to work on in the years past. And Mark Edens and I, who were tasked with laying out the first two seasons of, of stories, Eric's the writer, his head yeah. writer on the show. Yeah. We love big, long, involved stories and just think that uh, you could, it's, it's, more, it's more satisfying like, to have a serialized story. Say, uh, our dramas on, uh, at, on prime time or on uh, uh, streaming, that, that you can get into the characters so much more deeply if the thing continues mm -hmm. for you know, 13 hours rather than just giving them one shot and then you're done. So we really pushed for that as well. And it was a tough call for the executives at Fox because as this book shows, making animated shows in the 90s when everything was hand-painted yeah. slowly, took, took seven to nine months when everything went right. And if episode three screwed up, then you couldn't show up. If, it's in, if they're serialized, yeah. you're stuck. You can't show episode four until you get episode three fixed. And that could take a month. And so what are you going to be in repeats for a couple months while you're waiting for episode three? So Fox took that risk and there was some delay because of that in that first season. And after that, they said, well, yeah, I don't know if we can do this anymore. And, but we really still wanted to. Yeah. So we snuck in lots of two-parters and we put that thing with the Savage Land in the second season right. where, where you've got a two-parter, nine individual stories and then two-parter at the end. Mm -hmm that are kind of that and those the ones in the middle could all be told out of order and they right. were i mean uh, uh, the ones that the, the, the nine in the middle they they did, didn't really progress they kind of felt like they did but they didn't really right but the thing that that one little one minute thing when the uh, savage land progressed and so fox went for that said okay we'll animate the thing in the savage land first so we know we'll have that in order and if episode five comes in and it's bad we'll swap it with episode seven and people will notice. So that was like one way to keep them mm -hmm. going in order. And the sec second way was to get five parters and four parters like uh, the, the Phoenix sagas mm -hmm. yeah. to, you know, so that it was a, it was a noble idea. And I think it really helped the show. Uh, and I think the audience loved it. I agree. I think but so but looking back on it, it was a very tough business decision that probably cost them, yeah. you know, a million dollars in a couple months delay. Yeah. Wait, wait, well, it certainly paid off. Wait, to clarify, oh, yeah. it, 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 it paid off, but to clarify, so the Savage Land scenes were all illustrated first, and right. because Fox wanted everything to be standalone, you guys did those first, and then you just sliced those into, you know, the episode. Yeah, yeah we just, we had one script that had nine uh, little one-minute little uh, things going on in the Savage Land that kind of built, and they'd meet new people, and they'd overcome them, and they'd get closer to Sauron or whatever. 
and that was all that progression was all written by itself and then a minute was or so was left in each of the of the nine middle episodes to put in you know the next savage line thing yeah. and luckily i don't think we had any production delays that year so the nine episodes you saw were the order that we intended but if we'd had to flip a couple we could have done that and just kept the savage lands in order gotcha you guys were prepared for for any scenario <laughs> but as flickman said i thought uh, it did pay off it did pay off a lot yeah yeah you know i think not going with a villain of the week approach which was certainly common for saban at the time you know looking at power rangers there was no interconnectivity between those episodes at all um, and making many of the villains, you know, most especially Magneto, super relatable, but that, that was also a risk, but it definitely, it definitely paid off. You sat down to develop the show. You had been given marching orders for 13 episodes because no one believed it was going to run past that. Yeah. But Margaret Lesh, the woman in charge of Fox Kids, really wanted to make this show. So, okay, you get to gamble on these 13 episodes, Margaret, but if it doesn't work out, you're out of here. Okay, fine. <laughs> Margaret. You with those first 13 episodes, it was, well, what is it going to be? a bad mutant of the week kind of fight in each episode, or is it going to be something a little bigger, which would be about the nature of mutancy and the nature of exclusion and the nature of, of a extraordinary minority uh, scaring the hell out of a, yeah. uh, a majority. Um, and that that's, that's my many more human stories that way. We look back at the books and, and, you know, if you've read the books, both things are in there. There are some books that are just nonstop, like, you know, professional wrestling fight you know which which super villain which super mutants could beat the other super mutant we'll know by page 20 um and that just really you know we've been through it long enough and the executives above us like like sydney eyewater and been through it enough they said no 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 we want this to be closer to primetime drama to serialized primetime drama like hill street blues where it's all about characters and so we obviously had big, massive, spectacular fights, but we thought of them as, as necessary scenes like in a Western. You gotta have a gunfight, but don't make, the, don't make the story about the gunfight. Make it about the characters. You've gotten pushback to, to start with Magneto. Yeah. To begin the series with Magneto. And he doesn't come in until it's three or four. He's three. Episode three. But that, but that gave you time to set up this universe. So when Magneto comes in, you go, he's, Okay, that's his point of view, but he, he might not be wrong, you know. And right. Xavier's got his point of view, and yeah. he might not be yeah. wrong. Because so. you've seen the Sentinels, and you've seen the, the their murderous intent, and you've seen them kill an X Men. By the time you meet the biggest adversary of the X Men, you have sympathy for yeah. for mutants in general, and you're gonna gonna give uh, Magneto a listen. You know right. the way the, Be the the way Beast listened to him in uh, in jail, but told him thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, and I think that that having that that drama and having that relatability relatability to the villains that's something that the x-men need you need that for to to tell an, a successful x-men story and i think that so far your series has probably adapted that the best in my opinion and and to jump back to what you were saying earlier julia about uh whatever it takes so our listeners at home know you wrote that episode and it was such a great episode. And you also wrote the Dates of Future Past episode, which was a wonderful adaptation. I, I can claim part one on that. I, I was uh, Bob. Bob, Bob Skier and Marty Eisenberg on part two. But yeah, those, got to do those episodes specifically. So you guys are great writers. You've proven you deliver really great quality scripts. My question when I was reading both your books that I just could not understand, why, did you, why were you getting so much pushback? 
from Saban <laughs> merch. Like, what, what, why, didn't, why was it such a warped concept that you guys were building a foundation? You know, you had to build the foundation and then the house from there. Why was there so much pushback? I'm convinced that because, again, 1992, got to remember where the world was at that time in terms of how people consumed TV. Yeah. Uh, you, you had Saturday mornings and you had the afternoon blocks for kids trying to program to that, you'd only had ABC, NBC, and CBS as the big three major networks. And you had syndicated affiliates, but those are, those are the three that went national. And then Fox decided to try and enter that field and become Fox, Channel, Fox Network, along with becoming Fox Kids. And there had not been a show like X-Men before that had succeeded like X-Men before. And, and if, hey, if we could bottle it, we would. Yeah. Everybody in Hollywood would bottle it. You if never they knew. know. Yeah, well, there were a couple, couple of problems. One is you've got this nine-month delay yeah. from when you pitch a show and you show maybe the first script yeah. to when the show goes on the air and you can see whether it's going to be successful or not. Mm -hmm. And so even though these were moderate to low, lower budget things, the, the people investing in the first season of the X-Men were investing about $5 million. Yeah. And... Among those people were local TV stations, uh, advertisers, merchandisers, whoever, Marvel. They, they, all, had a, they all had a financial stake mm -hmm. in this. And they're always second guessing. I mean, yeah. it's, it's hard not to when you've got that much at stake. And they re literally hadn't seen anything like this before. And they just didn't get it. Yeah. And so they were scared. They were scared. Okay, we're going to put this money into this. And it's going to evaporate, you, you know, it's going to, it's going to show, you know, it's going to show for six months and then it's going to get dumped and there'll be something sweet and funny replacing it the next fall, um, which happens when, and, and the majority of TV shows fail. So mm -hmm. it's not like it would be an unusual thing to have a show fail. What we had going for us was everybody in the creative side and everybody at the, the television network, which had the last say in it. Uh, even above Marvel, um, believed in this way of doing it. They got lots and lots of pressure, again, from yeah. either from people that wanted a different show mm -hmm. and maybe wanted to, to take over the running of it. And it happens a lot in Hollywood. There's a lot of, oh, well, no, if you'd only let me run the show, and put, <laughs> you know, I will make you all the money that you're hoping to do because I understand this world better than the rest of you do. Mm -hmm. And I'll make all these changes and I'll say, I'll be the savior for the show. You, there's, there's that kind of, uh, you know, coup attempts in, you know, on 10% of the shows that get made out here, there, there's, there's lots of, there could be lots of infighting. You know, because nobody knows. Yeah. Truly yeah. nobody in, knows. Until, until the audience, until that first, you know, the audience looks at it and says, ah, this came together and the magic happened. Yeah. You really don't know. So everybody has a, a, an opinion and some people, have more background or more clout or louder voices or whatever. And if you're trying to, if you believe that you're trying to save your show and keep it going off the rails, you just have to dig in and fight that and pray that you win. Because sometimes even if with the best intentions, uh, the people that are putting the money up finally shrug and say, well, we're getting all this criticism about your show's too dark and adult and not funny enough. Uh, leave and we're going to put in somebody that can that can make it a bit younger and funnier uh it's it's at, at the writing stage that's easy to do um the thing the again the problem with the animation takes so long to see how it works 
you know, if it was a live action show, you shoot the pilot and then you know, the next day you could have an audience and have them watch and see if they get it or not. Mm -hmm. yeah. Even then some very successful shows, you know, they'll have these test audiences and they'll go, Ugh. and the person involved that really believes in the show has to stay fighting that to keep it from being changed. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, of all things, Star Trek had two pilots. Because yeah. they watched the first pilot and it just wasn't right. I wish yeah. we, you know, I, I wish there was, most people wish there was that much latitude in TV that happens almost never, that, that they're allowed to then spend the money again and do yeah. a completely different one. But, um, but yeah, that's it. They, uh, it just was so different. And that's the thing, a lot of times in music and, and TV and movies, uh, the things that really grab people are something new and different. Yeah. And, the reason that it freaks people out who are supporting, who are putting the money up for it is because it's so new and different because <laughs> they haven't seen it before. I think, Oh my God, uh, I'm rolling the dice here. So that's it's, we understand the pushback. It just, it wasn't pleasant while we were fighting it. Well, yeah, thank I, you I for fighting it because I did not want Xavier and Cyclops with a dog in a van. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for saving our True story. Family. True story. True story. That's just ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Um, so jumping to the look of the show uh, for just a moment, um, obviously the costumes used on the show were the Jim Lee designs, which of course became super iconic. You know, many of the characters uh, revert back to a version of them time and time again. But when you were developing that first season, obviously they were, they were pretty much brand new. What was it about those costumes that made them the right choice over looks like Cyclops with his hair covered or Storm with a tiara, you know, that had been tried and true for decades? Well, that, that, those are more uh, people like, uh, in, in the book, uh, Will, Will Minio, who made a lot of those decisions, or at yeah. least stood by, the, stood by them and shepherded them through to the end. Um, some of those decisions were made for, for what worked best in animation, but right. um, because again, this was not computer generated. Someone right. had to literally hand paint every single. And cell. so, if you got a much busier style from somebody, you just tripled the animation budget. Mister right. Sinister. <laughs> yeah, so. no, you you were talking about the the lines on his costume. That's why, but it worked in your favor because it now it looks did. like he's coming out of the shadow. Yeah, we, we couldn't afford to animate as many <laughs> lines as there are. So so yeah, he became very Bella Lugosi Dracula like. He would ease <laughs> in and out of shadows and and suddenly appear to people without, without turning because turning was so expensive. But that was a Larry Houston workaround where he took something that's a oh, crud and, and figured out how but, to make it happen. But, but we're, we're, we're new to this. We just had our heads down writing the stories. <laughs> yeah. uh, people like Will and Larry knew every single costume that the right. X-Men had had oh, since sure. 1963 and decided we're starting with Jim Lee and you know, we're making these decisions and we've decided on this team of eight out of the, you know, the 28 or whatever we could have chosen out of the 30 years of the books. Right. Cause we had a um, team too. So given yeah. that here's, here's how we'll, and, and given the, the needs of animation, here's this, the, the costumes we're starting with down to the last detail. And here's the subtle adjustments we're making to allow us to animate them well. So that was all quick decisions by the art staff, then seeing them played out, uh, you know, deciding you know, that that was all on them, and yeah. and we were we were thrilled with the re end result, but yeah. we knew so little about right. the, the history, and we know how much it means to fans, and we know how much it. it looking back, uh, uh, artistic decisions like that can affect the show because if they look wrong, 
nobody's going to buy the show. Right. Uh, but it wasn't something we, we really had a hand in. You know, wait, wait, just, wait. Yeah. The, one of the decisions you guys, the show made, and I know you just said you didn't, but that is really iconic right now is giving Miss Jean Grey, my favorite X-Man, a ponytail. <laughs> Do, what was the did, did you know? Is it just something the, the designer made the tweak for it and you just accepted it? Or were you like, no, we'll give Gina a ponytail so she can look different from Storm and Rogue? Because it's endured. It, I swear it was a, des, a design decision based on how to, and it, fluid. You know, how do you move your head? Yeah, how, yeah. how do it's you part move of your the movement, I think, you know, if you look through Will Minio's work, and I've seen about 25, 30 years of it, he sent mm -hmm. me. He loves drawing women. That's his favorite thing on the planet. Some people love action shows. Some people love, uh, you know, drawing fights. You know, whatever. Will loves drawing women, and Gene was his first. Was the first character he drew for the show. Yeah. And and mm -hmm. and I just think it just was something that he sensed that came out of her character and informed her character a little bit. There's just something. You know, you would never put Storm in a ponytail. That would be or weird. You could, but that would be weird. <laughs> but giving it to Jean kind of made her even more, you know, the girl next door that everybody could talk to. Yeah. And that he he did that just instinctively, yeah. and it was just his choice to have that as an uh, as an alternative, you know, as one of her approved looks for the show. Well, as a very crazy neurotic Jean fan, thank you for giving her a topsy tail. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, just real quick, I, you know, while we're talking about character design, I want I want your your opinion on this. This is a long-standing debate within the X Men fan base. Is Storm's costume black and shiny, or is it white with shadows? Ooh, okay, <laughs> if we're talking this, yeah, on the cover. That's white with shadows. That's white, Boom. yeah. Boom. That's what I right there, you settled the debate right. Because it is white, but, but, but there have been iterations where, you, could, where it, you know, is it blue and gold, is it black and white? You know, oh, okay, yeah, it, 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 she does have iterations where she's in black, but mostly in our show she was in white. Yeah. yeah. If that counts, that window of time. Oh, that yeah, for me. sure, for sure. Um, so I have a question. So the, the designs are based off of Jim Lee. You guys talked about this in the book. And when Jim Lee left and he went to go start Image Comics, it's sort of Marvel kind of came back and they were like, no, we don't really want to use these designs anymore. Do, do something else. And you guys didn't want to because it was going to throw off your production schedule. But I need wait, to wait. know, how bad were the designs that you gave them? <laughs> that they actually were like, nope, thank you. We'll just take our chances, like we're keeping the lead. Yeah, the, the story. The story of it is, you know, yeah, uh, they. You know, it's not unusual for a company. You know, they've just they've just lost half a dozen of their you know their main designers, and Jim Lee was one of them. And so they didn't want to, you know, the knee jerk reaction from a corporate standpoint, from a business standpoint, is we don't want to be celebrating or supporting the people that just left us in the lurch. But it's 1992, so, yeah. so we don't know which, which, this. Which no didn't, one's telling yeah, us. Yeah, which no. didn't mean anything to us producing the show. All it did for us producing the show was, okay, that's going to set us back six weeks, oh, and shit. we're already behind. And, <laughs> and Will's already designed yeah, everything. Yeah, and, and it's going to weaken the show because, because there's an absolute consensus that this is the right look for the show, so we're going to have to think of something else. And so... Um, but it was it was pretty much an edict like we're not going forward unless you get rid of the way the show's designed. 
And so I, I have not seen the, the Scooby-Doo X-Men. We have looked. We yeah. have searched. Yeah. And have Will looked. doesn't have them anymore, but Will definitely designed them because uh, I think I've seen some old memos where if he sent them around to all the people. With a straight face. Yeah, Saying, charge, you want a new design, here's people, your new design. Like, uh. like co-designer Rick Hoberg and, and Stan Lee and other people are just losing their minds. You know, Will, what are you doing? This is <laughs> awful. This has nothing to do with the show we talked about. And so that got in and it gave them pause enough to think, well, uh, no, we need to do what's best for the show. Let's mm -hmm. not, let's not let a petty corporate difference. <laughs> the fact that Jim's no longer with us, make us get rid of his, his look because his look is going to be best for the show. So they, it took a few days for them to calm down and figure it out, but they yeah. came to the right decision. And Absolutely. I, yeah, I would, I would pay a lot <laughs> the, to, to see what Will sent them because he threw them away and I wish he hadn't. Oh, yeah. I wish he hadn't. I was looking for them in the book. When you said it, I was like, what page are these on? And I never found them. <laughs> they aren't there. They're not oh. there to be found anymore, which is heartbreaking. But that's again, 30 years later, stuff's yeah. not stayed, stored on computer. We were lucky to find what we found. Yeah. Right, right. In many ways, your show was a reaction to Pride of the X-Men and, and specifically what didn't work for Pride of the X-Men, i.e. Stan's narration, the intro song, not humanizing, um, the, the mutants the way you guys did. So I'm just curious, though, what, what elements didn't work for you guys? Because for me, like, as a, as a fanboy, I do look at Pride of the X-Men and I love it. You know what I mean? I love the toy animation, but I'm curious when I put like a writer's hat on, what was it about it that just felt very wrong? The thing that, that, that really gave us pause was they just seemed to jam it with too many characters. There was, uh, and you couldn't service all the characters that they were asking you to. Our, hardest, to. our hardest challenge every week was you've got nine main good guy characters. Mm -hmm. You've got to have a few bad guy characters. You maybe have a guest character like uh, Nightcrawler. You've got all these people you're trying to service. And we kept on trying to simplify and simplify and simplify so that maybe only three, it'd only be three X-Men, you know, two guests and one, you know, father-in-law, like, you know. Yeah, whatever uh, it takes, yeah. Storm and Rogue. Storm yeah. and Rogue. And, yeah. And okay. you, you touch base with the rest of the mm -hmm. team, but you focus on two or three because it's really difficult to get to know and love and bond with the characters if you only see them for five seconds and they shoot their power and they're gone. And that was, I think, part of the problem with uh, Pride of the X-Men was they were so, they're using it as a sales tool uh, and mm -hmm. hoping, to, hoping to sell merchandise, hoping right. to, to, to show, look, all, look at all the different characters we can use in a series. And in doing that, they only get, you never had time to really bond with any of them. And that's what that flood, that kitchen sink uh, amount of characters is what hit me when I watched it and said, oh, we, we, we can't tell stories like this. I think this is the reason it didn't catch on. Not because it isn't cool and beautifully and animated. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think yeah. they spent more on it than we, were, than we did on, yeah. on our animation. Uh, it, it looks good. It's got some cool stuff in it. But, but that... And, and some creative decisions like making Wolverine Australian. Oh, not, oh. Be, not because it served as a story, only because Crocodile D was popular and they thought it might, the kids might like the, the X-Men better if they sounded more like Crocodile Dundee. And that, that's there, the reason. There are those kind of decisions all through Hollywood. And, mm -hmm. 
and you know the, you're sympathy you're sympathetic because these people putting up the money are risking a lot of money and they don't know any better yeah they yeah. just know that this guy with a hat from australia has made two billion dollars in the last three years <laughs> and that, hey that might help our show yeah and they will then insert that into your show where it doesn't fit and it's wrong it's terrible now i'm going to jump in the same people that worked on that show at a different level at marvel at the time uh went on to work on x-men at, at fox will and larry and margaret and sydney, sydney. and so all those people the they they had people above them when they were doing pride of the x-men that forced those kinds of australians are hot make wolverine australian <laughs> that, they, that they couldn't push up against push back against when Margaret became president of Fox Kids and fell, it all fell in line for X-Men, those people were in place and had gone through the experience of having folks say, make them Australian, kids won't care. And now we're going to draw the line in the sand and say, yeah. no, that's not how we're doing it this time. It was, it was a learning experience for Will and Larry. I mean, they've done a lot of producing mm -hmm. here, but, but a lot of times, you know, they've been forced to compromise in ways they thought was terrible. Well, you know, to to keep a show going and to keep my staff employed or whatever. Okay, well, we'll swallow this and we'll make Wolverine Australia. And, and luckily, they had they had uh, Margaret and Sydney, you know, listening and sympathetic. But I think they were at the point, and we as writers were at the point where now we've compromised enough. When they when they suggest that the some you know bad toys be featured in every episode. <laughs> No, not this time. Uh, fire us if you want to, but we're going to tell we're going to do it this way this time. And we were surrounded by people that were doing doing and saying the same thing, so it kind of fed on itself, and it gave us all more courage to put our foot down and risk our jobs when we had to. Yeah. So, was Pride of the X Men the reason we never saw Kitty Pride on your show? Yes. It's. Uh, I think it. It struck. The, I mean, which is unfair to her. Uh, I think. So it, unfair. Well, there's two. There's two reasons. Two reasons. One is we that may uh, uh, Marvel was pushing Jubilee uh, in 1992. Who was a new character to the books. Yeah. And, yeah. And so, just like we didn't want to have like eight big gruff guys be the team, you know, we didn't want Cable and Colossus and Thunderbird and Wolverine <laughs> and you know, we didn't want that to be the team. We wanted everybody to be as different as possible, and having two teenage girls yeah. just, just wasn't room on the team. We could have had a guest appearance with her, but I think just the fact that she was kept out of the first couple seasons, she never, because Pride hadn't worked, uh, we could have had her as a guest on something. Uh, I just think it just didn't, after a couple of years of doing the show, it didn't occur to anybody to think about it. And there were so many characters to there's service. So many, there's so many other already. people in the X universe to try. That, uh, but if we had a sixth season, yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so I want to go back to what you were talking about with the merch team and you know being sympathetic, but really stepping your, your ground there. Because I was shocked to hear that story from Avi Arad where he was insisting on these ugly like Happy Meal toys or walkie-talkies to be incorporated in, in, in the show because... He went on to do Spider-Man, the Spider-Man movies and the X-Men movies. Do you guys think you taught him a lesson? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Uh, I, you know, cause he was, when he got on at Marvel, he had no production experience. He was a toy guy. He was a, mm -hmm. uh, it was toy biz. I was buying into Marvel when Marvel was failing uh, financially and he got his foot in the door there. And so his, his instinct at the time was just, 
get the merchandise up front and center right and treat the cart treat the cartoons as 22 minute commercials right which a is kind of illegal but i mean people <laughs> do, it do it constantly um we've been i've been on shows before where we'd get weekly updates from the toy companies about new toys they were designing and suddenly we'd be writing new characters <laughs> stories because there was a new you know transforming Porsche instead of a transforming Ferrari that was coming in to do the show, whatever. So we're used to that. But he, I think, yeah, he, he obviously is, is, a, uh, is a, a clever executive or grew to be a clever executive. He's very savvy. When he, when he dropped in, he also knew that uh, we were, we like final, final eight or nine of the first scripts and he didn't have a lot of clout and he didn't have, final say he was had to ask us he couldn't just say that you have to have the uh wolverine curtains or the the wolverine phone oh. or the walkie-talkie in every episode or we won't support the show he didn't have the leverage to do that i mean some in some shows uh especially back in the 80s uh the, the merchandisers paid for the shows and they had all the leverage it was just like she run he-man so it was uh, the idea of Wolverine using a walkie-talkie with his face on it is ludicrous. What the show is, but again, for people if coming you, at the show from different perspectives, it's like, well, of course you would have, of course you put it in, of course you have that. Yeah. But in the book you mentioned, you were like, are we talking on walkie-talkies with our own faces on them? Like, it, like if, if we want the show to be taken seriously. You know, you, we have to, there have to be certain elements that we have to ask our audience to go along with. And one of them is not having walkie talkies with Wolverine's face on them. To be fair, I would have bought Wolverine curtains though. <laughs> I, I, I would have. Um, but, you know, it's, a lot of people had a lot of opinions about what you're doing. Um, and of course, Stan Lee was one of them. Sounds like he had a bunch of grand ideas for the show. And, you know, reading the book, I agree. They all would have been awful. And I'm super glad you stood your ground. But, as a as a Marvel fan, I just how do you say no to Stan Lee? Yeah, that was the name of the oh. that was the name of the chapter. It was really yeah, that uh, was not a good yeah, period of time because because I liked Stan. I mean, mm -hmm. I liked having and we still remain friends with him. Yeah, we worked with him on other projects. On uh, three other projects, X Men turned out great. Afterward, but it took that. Yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the the way I would was would describe it to people was okay. It's nineteen ninety two, and there's been the you know, the Vietnam War and there'd been the punk scene that had been garage bands and, and Stan is trying to make us, you know, do Pat Boone songs. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that Pat Boone isn't really good at what he does and wasn't super successful, but there's just, there's just a, a tone uh, uh, clash here that just, that everybody, uh, everybody, that was involved in, in the creation of the show was in their, basically in their thirties. And Stan, I mean, I have great sympathy for him now. <laughs> He's older than I am now. <laughs> Stan was in his late sixties. And so there just was a different reference point. And he had, and he really didn't know the new X-Men. He knew the yeah. old X-Men mm -hmm. that he and Jack Kirby had put together. So it was again, just, you know, the, the X-Men of 1975, 76, 77 were really different. Totally yeah. from what he was used to or what was in his head. And unfortunately, you know, Stan was a really driven guy. And it's one reason he's successful yes. as he was. And he 
always an incredibly creative and uh, you know more fun in most meetings than <laughs> say the the business people that were in the meetings because yeah, you know, sure. he's a creative guy yeah. and he and I always got the meetings early because we both hate being late mm-hmm. we, uh, that's it's a Hollywood thing you know the, the last person to show up at the meeting has the most status so everybody has to wait for them and Stan would complain about that he's, okay Eric you're always you know you're always here early with me and I said yeah I just you know hate making people wait so <laughs> so we, we shared that but he was this ball of energy he was this driven guy and he as soon as he knew there's gonna be an expert project any project that he's had like his hand on throughout his like 50 years at Marvel um, you know I know how I could run that you know I know what that show could be and endless confidence endless energy endless focus and so he was but being so different it had to tamp him down because because he wanted to take over the show yeah. he had an access to margaret lesh who was the final say, had the final say and they were close friends they're much Very closer close. friends than margaret and i were and she'd worked with him for years and years at marvel so he had her ear and he really didn't want to let go of feeling like this is going to be his show and we that was just it ended up being a like you know as i say in the book i had to say uh uh either if you want stan to run it cool if you want me to run it but we you know we have different ideas about what the show should be you've got to decide you're paying me to run the show and if i disagree with someone that's even if they're from stan i've got to i've got to tell him because it's for the good of the show um and that gradually, Will Minio brokered a, 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 hap, a happy piece about that. And gra- yeah. as soon as the show played and was successful, uh, Stan kind of backed off, deferred, and realized that we had a, a successful show going the different direction that he would have done it. And he started focusing on other things. But um, for you know four or five months there, that was a challenge. So yesterday was two years since Stan passed. Yes. And I'm, I'm curious after you guys stopped working with him on the show, I know you went on to do other projects with him. Did he ever look at you guys and say, Hey, you know, the X-Men animated, that was great. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think so. He, I think he, he understood its success. And so that gave a certain amount of respect other than if, you know, we just fought him over something that failed. Because <laughs> uh, we were involved in other pitches, we pitched a yeah. we we pitched a, a, a Thor show mm-hmm. to uh, uh, to a network where Stan and Avi were were the Marvel side of it that, that just didn't go for whatever reason, and and then we worked on three or four other things, and then when Stan got his website up, you know, he hired me to to do some some writing of scripts and developing of, of series for him on that. Um, and he was always this trusting guy and would be taken advantage of like oh, with that website. That was the hard part. You know, some yeah. guy comes in and walks away with all his money and, and you just feel terrible for the guy because yeah. he was, you know, he was this really hardworking, creative, trusting soul. He did want to be in charge of everything, yeah. which, which could be a problem if, if it was a project you were already in charge of. But that said, um, it was, it was uh, fascinating working with mm-hmm. him. Even even when I was fighting with him, 
we love you, Stan. We miss you, Stan, obviously. Um, <clears throat> but something that really stands out to me watching this series over as an adult was uh, the use of normal humans as the real enemy of mutants. Um, certainly now, because sadly, 25 years later, you know, the hateful rhetoric spewed by Graydon Creed, the Friends of Humanity, it's unfortunately still super relevant. Um, was there a lot of pushback to using everyday humans as the real enemy of your show? Actually not. No, no, there wasn't. Yeah. I, the, the pushback, if, if I want to put it that way, came from the, uh, in, in crafting the world and it's creating what the world was, why the Sentinel project happened, why the Sentinels were, bit, were created. The, the pushback came from, it can't be government-driven gov for us in a kid's show. Well, yeah, we can't, we we can't, can't have we can't the government have, authorize this. Yeah, yeah, there was even some awkward, the only most awkward line in the, in the first two-parter that we were pretty much forced to put in there <laughs> saying, oh, this isn't the U.S. government setting up the Sentinels. It's a rogue faction within yeah. the U.S. government. And so th there, was there were some fine lines like that, that. That it couldn't be from the, that in this world, it, the U.S. government can't be the big bad. Yeah. But, and I, under, I appreciate that, but you're asking about that stuff. And that's one of those things that, yeah, specifically, and the female president, whom we had at the time. <laughs> I was going to say, progressive, progressive. Oh, we Still saw that. that. Trust me. That shape, <laughs> that's why, I mean, we grew up, Flinkman and I grew up the way we did, because we saw little things like that female president right there with the Sentinels at the White House. And it, we just accepted that as fact. We never questioned it. Of yeah. course, we can have a female president. She and part in the U.S. government were not in charge of the Sentinel Project or the, the Friends of Humanity. Those right. were angry, ugly people who had their own agenda and wanted to maintain their whatever, dominant superiority, uh, whatever. It was ugly. It was, and yeah. it remains ugly. Any of that kind of stuff is always ugly. Well, thank you again for, again, standing your ground on the series. I, one of the, the things of the book that I loved the most was a statement of priorities you all sent to Marvel. And it was so firm in a way, and I'm just going to regurgitate what you, you've already said and paraphrase it. That's like, you hired us to do this, do this. Like what we need help for, from you guys is to fill in the blanks with these characters. And I mean, how do you write something like that so great? <laughs> I, I, I'm baffled because even now in my 30s, I'm like, I, 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 would not, I would not know how to articulate myself the way you guys did in that statement of priorities. Well, I think, I think we were, uh, desperation is the, the mother of invention. Hello, uh, motivator. <laughs> yeah, we were just so, we were, felt so desperate to keep the show on, on the line that we wanted it to. And we'd all been through uh, difficult notes or, or lack of support or people with, with other needs changing the shows we were on. We were able, and we'd, we'd, always, we'd had fights before and oft, oftentimes we'd, we'd have lost them because we didn't have leverage. And in this time we felt with, with Fox, with Sydney and Margaret there behind us that we had the leverage to to just to, to speak our minds and say and explain that that we all care about the show succeeding and we think what you're doing isn't being helpful uh you know there's you're, we're not impugning evil intent here but you know you're doing this and it's not being helpful to us we need you to do this 
and try to be as respectful and nice about it uh, with, a, with a creative partner as you could be. And it just, yeah, I think uh, it, ju it just came down to some serious fear about if we didn't take these stands that the show could be ruined. Because it just takes a little, it just takes a little, to go a little off track mm -hmm. and A, then more, maybe more notes come in or B, mm -hmm. uh, it just it, it the magic isn't quite there the way it would have been if you'd held your ground. So that was yeah, I think it was desperation talking. That, you know, that yeah. So after you sent them that that sort of statement of priorities, was that did you start getting the info that you needed? Because it seems like you know there was a point where you guys were almost keeping pace with the comics in terms of introducing new characters and ideas, like specifically like the Nasty Boys. They were brand new when they showed up in season two, and you know with Gambit, Belladonna, and the Guilds. All of that was relatively new. Um, were you guys given advance notice on those things, or was they just like a natural we, fit? We we were. I mean the the like Larry Houston, I mean the the artists, and we were were keeping up on that, and we get you know notice about. Uh, people that i mean like for one thing they didn't say oh let's we, we, we want to get to, we want to meet cable he's a new guy that we're pushing we wanted so we'd get some just general notes like that and when we did we would make sure to ask as many questions about okay who exactly is this cable and what does he mean to who does he mean what to mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so that so that we could build a character and then sometimes there was more sometimes there was less in sympathy to the people creative people at Marvel who were supporting us uh, when in the previous uh, efforts to do shows, they basic uh, the Hollywood partners very often just kind of kept them out and just said, Oh, look, Oh, how nice we're going to do a spider. We're going to do a fantastic forest series. We don't need to talk to you. We're Hollywood. We do things differently. Uh, and then you get goofy sidekicks or whatever you get. Yeah. And I think Marvel was used to the idea that, okay, we're going to get a fee out of this. But well, that we, was what's happening financially at the time. But they didn't even really assign anybody, um, you know, didn't pay for anybody extra mm -hmm. to help us. It's just, okay, Bob, you're working 70 hours a week. Also, <laughs> spend 20 hours a week helping these guys with their scripts. And, and so in that way, um, it, it was, you know, I was coming back around. I don't know that they had serious expectations about directing us uh, through the series. They just assumed we were going to do what we wanted. And they did, and, and even contractually, as I mentioned, Fox had final say on stuff. So even if we did things that they didn't like, they could complain, but they, but they had to live with it. Yeah. So they, I think they were assuming we were going to be they, we weren't going to take much uh, time from them or much interest from them or need information from them, but we were just desperate for it. We, were, <laughs> we wanted to soak it up. And so that was, that was an adjustment. They spent more and more time as we went along supporting us. And when we come up with, with, with new things or when we went and, and decided to do both Phoenix sagas, there was some more in-depth discussion about you know, important ways to handle that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that um, that stood out to me when I was reading the book that I found really curious was that from an industry perspective, they were comparing you guys to the Batman animated series. So I, I'm curious why they just wouldn't throw logs onto your fire instead of having so much coming, coming at you. 
Well, I, I think it's I think it's because at the time, you know, Mar uh, Marvel was was a small, much smaller company, and they were struggling financially. They were about to go through bankruptcy, and mm -hmm. they were they were overextended, and that was starting to fall apart. So they were part of the equation in terms of producing X Men the animated series. There was uh, Graz, there was Fox Kids, and, and then so, and Saban and, and Saban. And, and to, be, to be honest, he would uh, Kaim Saban would honestly say, you know, his interest about you know the the uh, the dog in the van. His interest was to produce the show as cheaply as possible. Yeah. Because in all his experience before this in television, uh, he'd get a certain amount of return from whatever you know he he backed. And uh, most of the stuff was, you know, not very special. And so the way he made a profit, the way he didn't lose his business by the end of the year, was doing everything really on the cheap. Mm -hmm. And so you had one of this major partner involved in the show that had absolutely no interest in making big, spectacular Marvel stories. He wanted, he wanted as tiny, as simple, as cheap show, shows as you could get. So... Uh, there's no support there. And that was different from, say, Batman at Warner Brothers or, yeah. say, Star Trek at Paramount. There was no one entity that was supportive of X-Men the Animated Series, <laughs> which yeah. also meant when you got the call to go in and create the show back in February 92, you were already, what, half a year behind where Batman was? A year behind. The, oh, Batman Animated had yeah. uh, begun development. A year before us. A year before Eric got the call to go do X Men, so <laughs> there was that kind of. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so it was a, yeah, probably Batman had this massive multi-billion-dollar studio behind them, mm -hmm. and they knew that this is something they had merchandise in, in, interest in. They had movie interest in that. All they had it, him set up right, and that's one reason they spent as much money as they did on to make that show so beautiful is that they knew it would be selling for 30 years and they knew there'd be more shows and they knew Batman was an evergreen character. So they had an interest in making their shows as beautiful as possible, like Disney does. Mm -hmm. yeah. Same kind of attitude. But we didn't have a Warners or a Disney behind us. We were this little slap together garage band. Yeah. Of right, three or right. four little companies that all chipped in a little something to get this off the ground because Marvel didn't have a budget. And this ends part one of our interview with Eric and Julia Lee Wan. Having them on the podcast is obviously a career milestone for us. Flink and I never intended this to be a two-parter. However, the Lee Wands were just so generous with their time, and we didn't want to edit out any morsel of information they gave us. Join us for part two, which will air this coming Tuesday, where we talk about Morph's death, Chris Claremont's thoughts on their adaptation of the Phoenix Saga, and how the show was originally supposed to end. Plus, they dive deep into their thoughts on their favorite parts of the series, the X-Men movies, as well as X-Men Evolution. And maybe they pitched a version of Wolverine and the X-Men? Oh, and what's up with Patrick Brown's art on the Disney store that shows their team with a modern look? As always, follow us on Instagram at Generations of X, where we are doing a giveaway of the Lee Waltz book, X-Men, The Art and Making of the Animated Series. Till next week, guys.